Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Be blessed. Blessings today and blessings to everyone in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3. I'm excited about it. Laura's here. Alan is here. And together we're going to look at this passage of Scripture, this whole chapter. And just a reminder about chapter 2. As we're looking at the first three chapters, really the first eight chapters, do not isolate any Scripture verse or any chapter by itself. This is one unit that is flowing together with a conclusion. In chapter 3... It is bringing chapter 1 and chapter 2 to a foundational understanding, and we're going to see this. These two chapters are brought to a conclusion in chapter 3 that lays a foundation that we're going to build upon in chapters 4 through 8. And the conclusion in chapter 3 is this, that there is none that is righteous, there's not even one. And also we're going to see that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in the sight of God. So we're going to see that by our actions, whether or not we're Gentile, Jewish, whether by an internal law, our conscience, or by the Mosaic law that was given at Sinai, by our actions, can we not stand before God holy? And then that is the foundation that's going to lead us to verse 21 that is going to bring forth the good news for us. And so let's start in chapter 3. And again, we're just going to take it one verse at a time, and I'm going to start off by reading here. Then what advantage has the Jew? Question mark. Remember, chapter 2 is all about the Jewish person and their faith and the law of God. So then he's asking the question, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Circumcision of the flesh is talking about here that goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. We must understand as Gentile background believers in Yeshua and Jesus, we owe everything about our faith that comes through the Messiah, through a new covenant, to the Jewish people. And we look at the salvation that comes through the Jews. And again, I want to remind us, this is a Jewish gospel through the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people and from the Jewish people to the Gentiles to the nations. And so when we look back and we look back at the Abrahamic covenant, we look at the law that was given to Moses at Sinai. We look at the Israelites coming into the land and not keeping the law, and we see the message of the prophets, and prior to that, the monarchy and the promises of one that's going to come through the line of David that will bring peace to the world. And we look at this, and we see the prophets, and they're prophesying about this one that will come. Everything about our faith comes from the Jewish people. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. So praise God for the Jewish people. Praise God for the nation of Israel and how salvation has come to the world, not through the rabbis, but through their Messiah. So they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Then he asked the question, what then? If some did not believe, 
their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Question mark. In Paul's writings, he always answers his own questions. That's something that I love about the way that he writes. He says, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written. And he's going to quote from Psalm 51, a quote with David repenting before God because of his sin. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so God is true. His judgments are true. His actions are true. Everything about his character is holy and righteous. And then it brings us to verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Question mark. I am speaking in human terms. Again, he answers the question, may it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? Now, what Paul is doing is answering the questions that others in the past have attacked him by presenting the gospel, or he's anticipating what others may think. So some may say, well, if mankind's unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what can we say? What shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Not at all. God declares what is unrighteousness, but by our unrighteousness, our lie, it presents God as truth, and his word is truth, and his words are truth, and his law brings forth truth. People have asked me before about the aspect of, then why did God even create us? If he knew we would turn and then we would get into sin, which would declare his righteousness, that it's almost like a cycle that God started. Yes, people ask these questions, and some of these questions we cannot answer. We can speculate. First of all, God is all-knowing, so before he created humankind, he knew that we would rebel. He gave us free will. That's very evident throughout the whole Bible. So he knew that we would sin and rebel against him. And at the same time, he had a plan of salvation, of redemption, of reconciliation for the whole world back unto himself. This reconciliation would come through his son, his Messiah, who was slain from the foundations of the earth. How great of a love that the Creator has for his creation, knowing that they would rebel against him, Yet there would be a day of redemption, and it was worth it to him. It would be very similar for us who have children. And if we knew in advance that they would rebel against our teachings and walk away from the things that we have taught them, but yet at the same time we had a plan of redemption for them, would we not, for our creation, what has come from us, would we not go through all the pain and all the suffering and all of the loss to see that day of redemption? And I believe that's how it is with God. Is this an exact understanding? I, I don't know. But God knows. God knows all things. However, he knew that we would rebel. He knew that we would sin. Yet at the same time, he had a plan of redemption. And God knows the end of the story. And that is a story of redemption. Now let's look at verse 6. He says, may it never be. 
He's talking about this idea that God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous. He's speaking in human terms. May it never be. May we never think in that way. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? How can God judge the world if he hasn't told us what is right and what is wrong? Verse 7, But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory. People argue, what is he talking about? As we go through these scripture passages, he's comparing unrighteousness to righteousness. I lie to the truth. In verse 8, evil to good. So by my lie... My unrighteousness, it shows that God is true and it abounds to his glory, that God is holy, God is righteous, God is true, even though I live a life of unrighteousness and my life is a life of deception. I've heard this a few times throughout the years about God and being just and a judge. If you saw a judge, you know, whatever country you're in, you know, whatever the highest court was, Supreme Court here in the U.S., if you had a judge that sat on there and let people go that should have been convicted and should have done time or been sentenced, you would say that's not a just and righteous judge and that would be frowned upon. And that's the same way, you know, with God. If he doesn't punish these things that he says is wrong, then he's not just. He's not being righteous because you have to punish things and, and he's laid it out clearly, you know, what's wrong and right. And he's laid out the answer, his son Jesus Christ, to bring it back. So if, if that punishment doesn't happen, then God can't be just. The same way if a, if a judge just kept letting people go um, that were doing really bad crimes, you'd look at that judge and say he needs to be off the Supreme Court. Yes, because he's not being just, and I fully agree with that. And think about this. If two parents tell their children, it is so important to tell the truth, to always tell the truth, even if it gets you into trouble, and to be a person of honesty. And that child goes and does the very opposite and creates what we call in Hebrew a bulagan, a mess. And from his lie comes all kinds of destruction. You look back at his life, it makes what my wife and I taught him the truth, and it shows that we were right. Now, we don't look at him and say, well, we told you so, so get away from us, and we don't want to have anything to do with you. In fact, what we're going to see from the character of God Our lie, mankind's lie, shows that God is truth and it abounds to his glory. But God does not use that to run away from us. God uses that to run to us with salvation. And so we look at this and we're unrighteous. He is righteous. We live a life of a lie, but the truth is in God and it abounds to his glory. And then the question comes after this statement, why am I also still being judged as a sinner if my lie proves the truth of God? Verse 8, and why not say as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? So some people are using these arguments that are a simple, basic truth that Paul is teaching us about God and his holiness and man and his unrighteousness, saying that, hey, then let's go out and do evil so that we can understand that good may come out of this as we do evil. May it never be, 
Paul says their condemnation is just. The people that teach that, think in that way, that we should do evil so it makes God look holy. We should tell a lie so it shows that God is true. We can do evil so that good can come out of that. Their condemnation is just. God is holy. God's word is holy. God's law is holy. His character is holy. And he expects us to live a holy, moral life that reflects his character. And when we do not do that, yes, it shows that God is true. But what is God wanting from us to reflect his character? That is the end result that he is wanting to bring about within our lives. And that's what we're going to see as we're moving towards chapter 8, a life in the Spirit. So the person who says, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. Now let's look at verse 9. What then are we, the Jewish people, or let's say the Jewish person that thinks that their actions are greater than anyone else? Are we better than they? Who are they? The Gentiles, the rest of the world. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. We all have a sin problem. And look at what he says. And in the next about eight verses, eight, nine, ten verses, he's going to quote from the Psalms, Psalm 14, Psalm 5. He's going to quote from Isaiah 53. Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36, different quotes from the Psalms and also with Isaiah 53 demonstrating these truths. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we're looking at totality here for both Jews and Greeks. Jews and Gentiles, for the whole world. When we look at our lives, and I would put it in the context of Isaiah, when Isaiah says, our righteousness are as filthy rags before God, when we start thinking that we can live a life righteous before a holy God and we can be declared righteous by our own actions, we are really missing the character of God. God is holy in every aspect of who he is. And so in that context, there is no righteous. Laura's not righteous. Alan's not righteous. I'm not righteous. In myself, in my own actions, can I never stand before God and be declared righteous by the actions and the works of my life, by the works of the law? I really wish that this understanding would be revived among our culture, because almost everybody you talk to says, I'm a good person. They may be living with their boyfriend, cheating on their taxes, lying consistently, all kinds of lifestyle, but they really are convinced, I'm a good person. And you hear it all the time. And this next verse coming up, 
really, I love it because it just says they have to shut their mouths. Yes. In the Western world, it is defined that I'm a good person as long as I'm not hurting someone else. But let me make this statement. Sin always hurts other people. And sin is not reflecting God's character. And as we sin, whatever the type of sin or however we want to describe the sin, and we don't have to get specific, we're sinning against God. We're sinning sometimes against ourselves, our very persons. We're sinning against others. We're hurting people. And when we are not reflecting God's character, sin always is destructive. And yes, today, I agree with Laura. People say, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not doing this or that. You go live your life the way that you want to, and I'll live my life the way that I want to. But those individuals are always hurting others. They always are, because they're living a life in rebellion against God. And there's none that is righteous. There's not even one. Who can stand before God? Can those individuals stand before God and say, I'm good? I would not want to be in their shoes. Yeah, and that the verse, you know, the wages of sin is death comes to mind. You know, so something dies. You die. People around you can die spiritually, physically, even because of sin. As much as you want to say, well, this is just something I'm doing that, you know, no one knows or it's not affecting anyone else. It'll eventually affect somebody else, but it it affects Mm -hmm. you as well. Yes, the wages of sin is death. The penalty ultimately for our sin is death. And death that comes physically, death that happens spiritually, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's not anyone out there that says, I'm a good person that's not hurting others. They're constantly hurting others by their actions, by their self-centeredness, by their selfish ambition, and sin is everywhere. The only way that we are going to be able to stand before God and be declared holy is through God's salvation. Now let's look at this next verse, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable unto God. So the law of God, and again, this whole time we've been talking about his moral character. The law of God closes every mouth, every individual that says, I'm a good person, that says, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm a good person, and I don't believe in heaven, and I don't believe in hell. I just, I'm a good person, and, and I don't believe all of these things. The law of God, whether it's an internal law that the Gentiles have, chapter 2, or the law of Moses that was at Sinai that reflects God's character, all the world is accountable to God through his law, and they have to keep their mouths closed. I don't think anyone on the day of judgment before God is going to be able to have an argument before God. And they're not going to have anything to stand upon on their own life and their own actions before God. I don't even think, how could you even stand in his presence? Much less to argue with God about I'm a good person or not. The law of God closes every mouth, and all the world has become accountable unto God because of God's character, his law. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin becomes clear. It becomes evident through the law. 
We're going to look at that very specifically in Romans chapter 7. But the law cannot save. Who can keep the law? The law of Moses could not save. It had to be perpetuated and fulfilled in the Messiah. The people of faith had the law. However, the law is not complete within itself. It is only completed and fulfilled within Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So all of this seems like the bad news, but this is the gospel. So we are destitute. We don't have any hope before God by our own righteousness. There is not eternal salvation at all by our own actions. We've always come to God by grace through faith. The law was given to the people of faith. Now, we cannot keep the law. Our righteousness will never make us eternally saved before God. So where is the hope? That's what's coming right now. And one thing that is very important for us to understand, you cannot have the good news unless you see the reality of how lost we are. And that's one of the problems within the church today. They do not want to talk about the lostness of man. They do not want to talk about sin and judgment and the wrath of God. Therefore, where is the good news? Do I go to church to get better self-understanding about myself and self-esteem to be built up and God is there to make me a success upon this life? No, we are lost. We are destitute. We do not have any hope. That is our future but there is hope in Jesus Christ. And so verse 21 is going to turn the corner for us. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now you go back to chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Covenant, that is speaking about a day that is coming where God's salvation is being completed. The law and the prophets witness to the day that we're in right now. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, where you come from. All of us have a sin problem. All of us have sinned against God. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been manifested, witnessed by the law and the prophets. And this righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Whatever the background that you come from, God's salvation has come. And that was always the intention And the plan of God for salvation from Abraham all the way to the Messiah, that the nations will come to know the God of Abraham. Then we're going to continue here. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody, Jew, Gentile, every person on the face of the earth have sinned against God and have come short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift. Being justified means I have been declared innocent before God. I am innocent. I am free to go. The charges against me have been dropped. I have been declared justified as a gift. This is not something that I can earn by my actions, but this is something that comes as a gift from God 
that cannot be earned, but we receive it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, publicly, that's him going to the cross, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So this atoning sacrifice, God's lamb, not our lamb. This is the lamb of God, Isaiah 53. He is coming and dying for our sins, our sins, an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation that is standing on my behalf because of my sin, and he's going to the cross publicly shamed and taking the price for my sin. It's always surprising to me that Jewish people didn't see this coming. Well, some did because all of the early believers were Jewish and they saw it. They studied the Tanakh. They knew this was coming. But for other reasons, some missed it. But now when I speak to Jewish people about the gospel, Jewish people that are in a rabbinical system, sometimes they say to me, that's cheap. It's a gift. It's cheap. It's nothing. What, why are you saying that God would just give away something so simply and you're just off the hook? That's not just from the rabbinical system. That can come from Islam. It can come from Hinduism, Buddhism. Every religion within the world really is a work-for-reward system. When we get to chapter 4, if we can earn this, then God owes it to us. And Paul's going to bring out one of the strongest points against that. God's salvation is by his grace, by his mercy. But I want to say to the Jewish person under the rabbinical system that it has always been that way. Abraham was an idol worshiper. He came from a family of idol worshipers. But God, by his grace, chose him and spoke to his life, and by faith, Abraham came into a covenant relationship with God, not by his works, not by his actions, not that he earned it or he got his life right before God came to him, but Abraham came into a covenant relationship with God by God's grace through faith. So it's the whole history of Israel. It's the whole history of the rabbinical system. Now, the rabbinical system has turned the faith of the Hebrew scriptures into Jewish law, what you can do and what you cannot do, and it's tipping the scale that you have more mitzvot, more good works than bad works, and then if you can have more good works than bad works, you're okay. To me, that is cheap. I'm earning my salvation. I'm going to earn God's righteousness and be declared righteous before God because I have more good deeds than bad deeds? No, it doesn't work that way from a scriptural standpoint. We have the only faith, a biblical faith, that everything begins and ends by God's mercy and grace. And outside of God's mercy and grace, who can stand? Think about David in Psalm chapter 51. He had committed adultery, had committed murder. How could he stand before God? The law of God condemns him. He even condemned himself with his own vocabulary. He articulated, this man should die. But he cried out to God for grace, for forgiveness, for a clean heart. He came with a repentive spirit within him. He says, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise, and God forgave him. 
David only continued in his life, and the promises only continued with David in his life because of God's mercy and grace. God forgave him. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a biblical truth. We have the only faith that is based completely 100% upon God's grace. So in Buddhism, you have to earn it. Hinduism, you have to earn it. Islam, you have to earn it. Rabbinical Judaism, you have to earn it. Roman Catholicism, you have to earn it. No, biblically, we come to God by His grace through faith. Yeah, and I think even taking it back before Abraham and just the the human nature that we have and God in His divine wisdom, all-knowing, like you said earlier, knew what was going to happen before this, and He knows our sinful nature. We always we always want to figure things out, right? As a human, we want to have a solution. We want to figure this out, which is good for some things. You know, you see humanity evolving in, in good ways and technology and that, things like that, but He knew that we'd want to figure this out. How can we have eternal salvation? How can we do something to us right with him. In his wisdom, he knew it had to be a gift. It just has to be because, you know, no one can stand before him and say, well, I did this. I figured out the formula to be a righteous person. I figured out this formula to be holy before you, and I've done all these good things. You know, he takes us out of the equation, and he takes us from looking at ourselves and saying that we're good, we're just, because we're not, and he knows that. And, you know, I don't think he's telling us that to, you know, you're you're such a bad person, you're unjust, you're sinful. It's just, no, you, you separate from me when Adam and Eve sinned, and I want to bring you back, and I have to do that with a gift, because if it is a works for rewards, then you're going to think it's you, and you're going to get the glory. But you And know, we can God, never work enough yeah. to gain this eternal salvation. Yeah, so it's just, a, it's amazing that he knew, knew this was coming and saw it and set it up in such a perfect way where no one can stand before him and say, I did this, let me into eternal life to spend with you because I did X, Y, Z. It's no, you're humbled before him and you say, thank you for your gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and giving it to me as a gift, giving me grace to get there. Amen. And going back to a statement that Laura made as well, There were some that were looking for Isaiah 53, but very few. They were looking for Isaiah 11, the one that would come from David that would establish peace upon the earth and restore the kingdom to Israel. But Isaiah 53 is also a picture of the Messiah. And John the Baptist, that all of Judea recognized as a true prophet, he introduced Jesus, Yeshua, He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And when you see that, that's the last song of four songs of the servant, and he recognized Jesus as the suffering servant from the very beginning. So there were some that did recognize why he's coming, what is his purpose, very few. Even Jesus' disciples did not recognize the true understanding of why the Messiah came the first time, as the lamb, not as the lion, but as the lamb. And only after his resurrection was he able to pull them back together. Only after the outpouring of God's Spirit upon them did they really turn the world upside down. So yes, there are some that did not recognize it, but praise God for those that did and those that finally came to the understanding of what God was doing. And these Jewish people that saw their identity not through the rabbis, not through the priests, not through the tradition of the elders, not even through the law of Moses. 
They saw it through the Messiah who fulfilled the law of Moses and made us righteous. They turned the world upside down. And thank you, Lord, for the remnant of the Jews that brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, the word propitiation is a word that really, we get the understanding, deflects the wrath of God. Jesus became our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice. And no longer is the wrath of God revealed against the person that has faith in Jesus. The peace of God comes. The greatest understanding of the Messiah is the peace of God that comes. And the peace of God has come into our lives because Jesus is our propitiation that comes in his blood through faith. And we have faith that what Jesus did upon the cross, that it fulfilled the law of God. It was finished, and now we can stand holy before God, not in our actions, but in the actions of what God did for us. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And I praise God that my sins are gone in Jesus' name. He also says this was to demonstrate his righteousness, God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. There's a lot of debate on what Paul actually means by this statement. Some see that he is looking back to those under the old covenant, or let's say the Abrahamic covenant, the Sinai covenant, their sins were not completely atoned for in the context of eternal salvation. Their sacrifices had to be done over and over according to the law for the people of faith perpetually as a covering for their sins. They had to be passed over just like we see on the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb that was put upon the doorpost of all the Israelites in the land of Egypt and how they were passed over. And we look at the law that was given to the people of faith and the day of atonement and the sacrifices that had to be done perpetually. So everything about the law is pointing to a day of its fulfillment once and for all. So I do look at this statement here, like some others look at it, that is referring back to the old covenant saints that were in a covenant relationship with God, and they were called holy. They were called saints. They are in a covenant relationship with God, that it is not complete. Their salvation for eternity is not complete until this sacrifice, not only for our sins, but for their sins. So let me read this again. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Those that had sinned in the past, their sin had not been completely atoned for for eternal salvation. And I will say this, everything in the Old Covenant points towards this sacrifice for sin. Everything in the New Covenant looks back to this day of salvation and all of salvation history Old Covenant, New Covenant hinges upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. About a year ago, I heard one of these late night talk show hosts was being interviewed, and he said, the God of the Bible is a sick 
person who just wanted to kill and destroy and hated people and just such a misunderstanding because it's sin that God hates. It's sin that God wants to pass over. I can look at my child, even when my child did something wrong against me or something wrong that disrupted the house, and I can work with that child through that sin, work through forgiveness, and embrace that child. That's the heart of God. Yes, I would agree. And again, going back to the first chapter, man walked away from God. Man sinned against God. Man was arrogant against God, caused all of the suffering in this world, comes from the rebellion against God and refusing to acknowledge Him. So why does the creation look back at the Creator and say, there's something wrong with you? And if you were a God of love, why would there be all of this suffering? God has always come to us, and we rebelled against God, the only true God, the Creator, and yet God has come to us through Himself, through His own Son, through His Messiah, and brought salvation. That is the character of God. And he passed over the sins previously committed about people that he brought into a covenant relationship with him. Their sin had to be atoned for once and for all for eternal salvation. And so he says in connection with this, I say of his righteousness, God's righteousness, or let me back up, verse 26, for the demonstration I say of his righteousness, God's righteousness at the present time, Paul's saying right now, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. His righteousness is right here for eternal salvation, and it comes through faith in Jesus. It cannot come any other way. Through any other religion, there's not two ways, three ways, four ways, different options. The only way that you can be justified before God and what declares God's justice is Jesus Christ, our propitiation. God came to us and brought redemption. And it's up to you and to myself, do we have faith from the heart to believe that this is the righteousness of God, that we cannot stand in our own righteousness, but we must stand through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he atoned for our sin. He took it away for eternity, and we put our faith and trust in him. This is the righteousness of God, and God is just. And God is the one that justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. It's not just for us in the new covenant. It was for the old covenant people of faith. And the law is fulfilled through Christ. Then he's going to ask this question, verse 27. Where then is boasting? As a person that has faith in Jesus, I'm declared holy and I'm declared righteous. I'm declared a saint by God not by Roman Catholicism, not by any denomination, not by anybody else. I'm declared holy before God because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that is true, how can I boast? How can I be arrogant before God and before men? Where then is boasting? It is excluded. It's done away with. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. We come to God by faith, and we've always come to God by faith. We're going to see that in chapter 4. 
For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. So both the circumcised and the uncircumcised of the flesh will come to God in his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, not through the law. The law is not complete in itself. It's fulfilled in the Messiah. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? Do we nullify the character of God and the morality of God, of living for God in the way that God wants us to live through faith? Absolutely not. May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. And we're going to build upon that in chapters 4 through 8. How is the law established? And we're going to see in chapter 8 through a life in the Spirit. How is the character and the morality of God established through faith in Jesus Christ? And we're going to see it's through a life in the Spirit that we must maintain walking in the Spirit to reflect and establish the character of God within our lives. And let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, I pray that every comment, every question, everything that we said reflected original intent of what Paul was saying to the believers at Rome. And Heavenly Father, your word goes forth. It does not return void. It accomplishes what you want it to accomplish. And God, I pray that we were found faithful to bring forth truth of who you are and this glorious gospel that lives within our hearts. We thank you, God. Use this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.